This evening, there's a lot to be proud of. We are a truly blessed congregation, uh, blessed because we have such a good number assembled here tonight in spite of the fact that a number of people have decided in various places they're not going to be present because they have commitments that they think are more important. But we're also blessed because we have some tremendous young people. Uh, not only would I be proud of our young people if they came in third place or fourth place, but I am extremely proud of them as they place first, not missing any on the test. There are three bonus questions. They got all three of those correctly, which were filling in the blank. Uh, you parents who are teaching your children to be a part of Bible Bowl are doing a great job. You are encouraging them to try to... Uh, excel in Bible knowledge, and uh, you're doing a good job. I want to thank Brother Steve because he has motivated these young people to be um, so devout and to put their best foot forward, and I think we need to allow those people who are working with our young people to know how much we appreciate them. Tonight, I'm continuing in a series of lessons on battle for belief. We have people in this world in which we confront each and every day who do not believe that there's a God in heaven. They do not believe that the Bible is literally the Word of God. They do not believe that Jesus the Christ is the Son of the living God. Nor do they believe that His body, the church, is essential for our salvation. And what we have tried to do in our lessons along the way is to establish one point and move to the next, to literally climb this ladder, if you will, of truth, to point out there is a God in heaven. We're not here as a product of evolution. We're here because God created the heavens and the earth. We pointed out that the Bible is God's word. We discussed last Sunday evening what it means to say the Bible is inspired of God. And just like when we dealt with creation from a uh, positive standpoint, then we stepped back to deal with evolution, we last week tried to uh, put forth, here's what the Bible teaches about the inspiration and give you proofs for it. Well, tonight we want to step back and deal with the supposed alleged contradictions and alleged errors in the Bible. As we begin, some questions are fundamentally important. When you ask the question, is there a God in heaven? Is that a fundamental question with regards to religion? Well, sure it is. Also, is the Bible trustworthy? When you read Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, and you read the Sermon on the Mount, did Jesus really speak those words? Can you be sure of what you read in the book of 1 Chronicles or the book of Ezra? Can you be sure, and I believe that you certainly can, if the Bible is not trustworthy, then Christianity is a sham. If you cannot look at that book and say that book is from God, then everything that relates to it, you're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're talking about the resurrection of the body. All those things fall. And so it's important that we address this subject. Let me point out to you, the devil 
was the very first critic of God's word. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, God said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will surely die. Notice the devil's response in chapter 3 and verse 7, or 3 and verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He contradicted God and said what God said is not true. It's not trustworthy. Critics have continued all the way to the very hour in which we live. Brother Kevin read to us from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days according to their own lust. What will they say? Where is the promise of his coming? For all since the creation, uh, the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the beginning of the creation. People are saying, oh, you believe in that? Well, where is this? Where is that? I will tell you that uh, I've spent a lot of time listening to a professor at the University of North Carolina by the name of Dr. Bart Ehrman. Dr. Ehrman is now perhaps the leading critic of the Bible. He teaches his students that the Bible is not trustworthy, that you cannot depend upon any word you read in it, and if you were to go and sit in his classes, he would mock you, he would belittle you for believing that the Bible is the Word of God. Are there errors in the Bible? Here's what we want to look at tonight. Number one, we want to understand what it is meant when you talk about alleged contradictions and errors. What are they talking about? Number two, I want us to look at the nature of them. And if you look at the nature of them, you just step back just a little bit. You can say, hey, I, I think I'm starting to understand where these guys are coming from and what they're trying to say. And then number three is dealing with them because you and I will be confronted with people who will tell us, oh, you can't trust that Bible. It was written long, long ago. It was written by people who translated it and retranslated it. In fact, if you listen to the Da Vinci Code, that's one of the things that was said. The Bible has been translated and retranslated so many times. How can you be sure that you have even got a Bible at all? What is a contradiction or an error? It's a set of statements which are so completely opposite, both cannot be true. If I wanted tonight, I could take the Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, as is set forth and held out to be inspired of God by those of the Mormon church, and point out to you that that book contradicts itself. There are passages which say one thing and then another passage which says something completely opposite. You can do the exact same thing with the Quran. And so when you talk about an error or a contradiction, you're saying something that the both of them can't be true. If that was established, then the Bible would not be from God because God is not a liar. God doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. Hebrews 6.18 says that by two immutable things in which it is 
impossible for God to lie. You see, God's nature is so holy, so righteous, and so good, He can't lie to man. And if the Bible is from Him, there's no errors in it. The Bible anticipated that some would claim to speak for God, but give false or contradictory messages. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 18, verses 20 through 20, or, yeah, verses 20 through 22, here is what Moses says. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Now the reason why that is important is, I hear people on the television today who say, God spoke to me. God told me to do this or do that. I was watching a singing show the other night, and one little girl came on there, and she said uh, to the judges before him, she says, God told me to come try out for you. And I think one of the judges said behind their breath, God told me to tell you no, too. <laughs> the truth is, people will claim all sorts of things and say, God spoke by me. If God spoke it, it's true. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you shall know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. And you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. John is saying, you were told there's going to be people who will tell you false things. The book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 2, to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Now here's the key part. And you have tested those who have said they are apostles and are not and found them liars. Is it appropriate to put people to the test and say, is this true or is this false? Well, they did, and they were commended for so doing. Now, what's discouraging is some religious folks have conceded that they believe there's errors in the Bible. As I presented last Sunday evening, those people who refer to themselves as neo-Orthodox, New orthodoxy. They believe that they have to go through and strip out the myths, strip out the errors that are in the Bible. Now, that brings me to this second part of the lesson. What is the nature of these? If you read Bart Ehrman's writings, whether you read them on the Internet or buy his books, which I am, would encourage you not to do, you get the idea that on every page of the Bible is a glaring error, that it just jumps out at you. 
that there's some sort of contradiction to be found there. But as you begin to investigate, many of these mistakes is because they wouldn't read their Bible and read it carefully. In fact, if you read their writings the way they read the Bible, you'll find contradictions on every page. And if you treated their writings the way they treated the Bible, they would say, you're not being fair. They're not being fair with the Word of God. Let me give you some examples of some of these. Differences in time. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, it says God was very pleased with His creation. It was very good. And yet when you get to Genesis 6 and verse 6, you'll read He was not pleased. Then God saw everything that He had made. Indeed, it was very good. So was the evening and the morning of the sixth day. It's chapter 6. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And they would say, see there, you've got a contradiction. Right there, just five chapters. God was happy and then God wasn't happy. But there was something that happened between chapter three or chapter 1 and chapter 6. What happened was the fall of man. And you had the thought of man only evil continually. Years had passed. There was a time when you could have said, Tony Lawrence is skinny. Believe it or not, till I was about 10 years old, they used to beg me to eat. That's hard to believe. But you see, time has a way of changing who we are and what we look like. And it changed the people of God. They charge that there's a contradiction between chapter 12 and chapter 20 of Genesis. In chapter 12, Abraham deceived Pharaoh. In chapter 20, he deceived Abimelech. And I want you to note carefully, Pharaoh cast Abraham out of the land where Abimelech invited him to live where he wished. That's Genesis chapter 12, verse 20. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Chapter 20, verse 15. And Abimelech, see, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. The problem is not there's a contradiction between chapter 12 and 20. It's because they've not read their Bible enough to know there's a difference between Egypt and the king of Gerar which is in the Gaza area of Israel. Big difference, big difference. They also don't understand, they don't read it carefully enough to understand there's a difference in speakers. For instance, Job 1 and verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. You get to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. In chapter 1, the speaker is God. In chapter 2, in this passage, the speaker is the devil. I can't turn around and quote the devil and think as if I'm quoting God. 
be nice if people at least read their Bibles a little bit. The devil frequently contradicts God, but God never contradicts himself. The inspiration guarantees that what is recorded is recorded accurately, but it does not guarantee the truthfulness of everybody who speaks in the Bible. What you have is when the Bible says the devil said this, the devil actually said that. But it does not mean that what the devil said was true. Many times you have people saying things in the Bible that are telling people things that are false. There's a lot of times differences in perspective as well. For instance, the gospel writers will give complementary information, but not contradictory information. On Wednesday evenings, we're in the auditorium studying the book of Luke. And we have observed that there are times when Matthew adds some information that Luke does not. And there are times that Mark tells us things that neither Matthew or Luke tell us. But they do not contradict one another. Let me give you a good illustration of this. In John chapter 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Matthew 28, verse 1, adds that there was another Mary that came with her. Mark 16, in verse 1, gives us the name of Salome coming. Luke simply just says the women of Galilee. There's not a contradiction there at all. One will tell you these groups. Another will tell you this, but they're giving you additional information. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. doesn't say that anybody else went because that's the emphasis is on Mary Magdalene. You come to chapter 28, verse 1 of Matthew. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Mark 16, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. No contradiction, just additional information. Another is the difference in standards. Ignorant critics used to argue that the gospel was contradicted. They contradicted one another on the crucifixion of Christ. In fact, I have actually heard a young man when I lived in Clarksville say, I just really can't believe the resurrection chapters, the crucifixion chapters because of the contradictions. And I said, what are you talking about? In John 19 and verse 14, says it was the sixth hour when Jesus was tried before Pilate. Mark chapter 15 and verse 25 said it was the third hour when Jesus was crucified. And he said, you see, you have him the third hour being crucified and then three hours later he's standing before Pilate. That doesn't make sense. Well, probably because you don't realize there's two different clocks that are being used. Notice again, John 19, 14. Now the day of preparation, the day of Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Chapter 15 and verse 25 of Mark. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Mark used Jewish time. John used Roman time. Mark's using Jewish time began at 6 a.m., 
And John used Roman time, which began at 12 a.m. Big difference. But what about copyist errors? The originals, that is when Paul wrote a letter to Corinth, he wrote a letter to Ephesus, he wrote one to Colossae, had no errors in it. But as time passed and people made copies of those, there were times when people made copy mistakes. I have, or at least I did have, I'll have to check and see if I still have it now, a copy of the New American Standard Bible that was published when I was a student at Freed Hardeman. I went and bought a copy of it, and then as I was flipping through it, I got to the book of Galatians, and I looked through, and it spelled Galatians G-A-L-A-T-I-O-N-S on every page. Not just one typo, but a typo on every page. Now, let me ask you a question. Did I know that that was the book of Galatians? Sure I did. Somebody somewhere put an O for an A, but I still knew what was being said. That's the majority of what's called differences in the Bible is where there's just a letter difference. And yet you can understand what is meant. And if you want to look and see some of these, you can go to the skeptics website called answeringchristianity.com and you'll find them just raising all these as if, oh, there's all these serious errors in the Bible. Let me point out to you that sometimes there are some places, but you can figure them out. In 2 Samuel 8 and verse 4, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. You go to the Chronicler account, 1 Chronicles 18, 4. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and then he goes on to say that David hamstrung. The difference is, notice, 700 versus 7,000. Which is it? 700, 1,700 as the Septuagint might have, or 7,000? Well, I don't think any of us would have difficulty realizing somebody put a zero on or took a zero off. The Septuagint has 7,000 in both passages, which is likely the correct one. And so if you start looking, okay, is it from this manuscript or this manuscript, and you have a one that's got them correct in all of them, you know which one is likely to be. Most likely, somebody simply left the zero off when they made a copy mistake. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26, and 2 Chronicles 9, 25. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Chapter 9, verse 25, 2 Chronicles, Solomon had 4,000. Is it 4,000 or 40,000? And uh, that's the question. Well, if you have three men per chariot, 4,000 works out perfect. So that's very likely the correct number. Sometimes people wanted, they're going through and they're making a copy and they say, oh, let's make this sound a little better. Let's just put another O on it. How did 
happiest mistakes occur? Well, you have to remember that all the manuscripts of the Bible were hand-copied, every one of them. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have a copy machine. They didn't have a scanner. They didn't have a... What you had to do, if you had the letter A, you had to write the letter A. Imagine copying the Bible. Do you believe that if you copied the book of Matthew from chapter 1 to chapter 28 that you could do so without making one mistake? You just think about that. The Jews would often destroy a worn-out manuscript, and so if a man copied this and he made a mistake, you couldn't go back and say, well, let's see what the old manuscript said to check it, because it had already been destroyed. It had already been burned. And so as a manuscript had a, a copyist mistake, it would sometimes continue on through and be repeated. The oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament in the early 1900s, was from about 1000 A.D. I know that you've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how valuable they are. They were over a thousand years older than the oldest manuscript we had when they were found at Qumran in the 1940s. That helped us to go back and see if there had been any copy mistakes made. There was very few of them. In fact, we found out our Bibles were amazingly accurate and helped clear up just a few of those copious mistakes. Now, uh, let me illustrate to you how you can see them. For instance, in Mark 14, verse 65, is it Ebalon, which means to strike, or is it Elabon, which means to be received? And here's the difference between the two. Then some began to spit on him and blindfolded and beat him and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. The ESV says the guards received him with blows. Which one is it? There's only the B is in one place or the other. To me, I believe the context is very clear that it's they struck him with their hands, not that they received him with blows. Or Revelation 1 and verse 5 is it L-O-U-O or is it L-U-O? That means the difference between being washed or being freed. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us. The ESV says, and has freed us. Now the truth is, it doesn't substantially change the meaning of the Bible. You see the difference between what a copyist mistake might make. Now how do you and I deal with this? When someone comes to us and says, I have found an error in the Bible. Don't become upset. Don't react and say, oh no. Say, I haven't found that yet. Give me a few days, let me study it, and then I'll get back with you. I think that what you will find out is most of the time that the people have not read the passage carefully and what they're saying that it says is not what it's saying. The context often resolves the apparent contradiction. Let me give you an illustration of this. And this is one which is relevant. People are dealing with this. 
In James chapter 2 and verse 24, you see that by faith is a man is justified and not by works. In Galatians 2 and verse 16, he said, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law. And someone says, see there, there's a contradiction between them. No, there's not. Because the works of James 2 is not the works of Galatians 2. Let me show you that. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. The law is the Old Testament. He's talking about a Christian. He's talking about in the New Covenant age. No one is justified by the works of that Old Testament law. But in James chapter 2, he's talking about works of obedience. Works where God has told you what to do. Either you believe Him and do what He tells you to do, or you don't believe Him and not do what He tells you to do. Two different kinds of works. Bringing it all full circle. You can trust your Bible. I don't have one question in my mind whatsoever that when I open the Bible and I read those words that they are accurate, they are trustworthy, and that I am reading the very words that God sent from heaven to man. I put in the bulletin this past week a quote that I found from Mark Twain, and to use his incorrect grammar, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. That puts it pretty simple. It's not the fact we can't understand the Bible and we can't see what it says, but what he was saying is what you learn, what you know, you ought to obey. And let me put it to you very simply. Here's what the Bible says. Here you can sum it up. God created man, man sinned. God created a plan, and man must partake of it. The plan is that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. We must believe in Jesus Christ, his son, repent of those sins we've committed, confess our belief in him, and then be baptized. That is to be immersed in water for the remission of sins. Then we receive salvation. You've got to keep following it, keep living it. But that's the message of the Bible. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, we want to urge you to do so. If you're a Christian and you need to be restored to faithfulness, we want to beg you and plead with you to be restored your soul is too important to allow this opportunity to pass. Would you come as we stand and sing?